Welcome to Regenerative Spaces, a podcast that explores holistic and sustainable paths toward thriving in the fields of agriculture, education, spirituality, and beyond. I'm your host, Stacy Poliche. I'm a regenerative farmer in Santa Barbara, California, with a background of three plus decades as a psychologist, environmental activist, author, and educator. Each week on this show, I get to chat with one of the essential teachers who has informed my own path and whose regenerative wisdom I want to share with you too. We're joined today by Melissa Cronshaw, a second generation beekeeper and educator. Her beekeeping journey started at the tender age of five, inspired by her dad's love for these incredible insects. From a single eco-bee box in her backyard, she now cares for hundreds of hives across Santa Barbara County. Melissa's beekeeping philosophy is all about keeping it natural. She practices treatment-free beekeeping, putting the well-being of both the bees and the ecosystem first. With her educational background, she's on a mission to transform fear into fascination and spread awareness about these remarkable creatures. Melissa looks after the bees on our ranch, and every time I talk with her, her passion for these magnificent insects shines through. I'm constantly amazed by the sheer brilliance of bees, and today I can't wait to share some bee wisdom with all of you. Let's get started. Okay. Hey, Melissa Cronshaw. I'm so happy to have you today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I want to start with, because this is my fascination, is tell me your origin story. How did you come to being a beekeeper? How I became a beekeeper. So my father was the main reason. Um, He had a high school teacher at Santa Barbara High School who had an observation hive in the back of the classroom. So it was a full functioning beehive with a glass window and then a tube going out the window so the bees could still come and go, but you could view what was happening inside safely. And he says that he listened to the bees more than he did the teacher and caught bee fever, which is highly contagious. And the only way to cure it is by playing with bees. So he went home, convinced his his parents, my grandparents, to let him order a beehive from a Sears catalog. This was back in the day when that's how you wow. went about ordering your farm equipment and pretty much anything else. So he ordered a beehive from a Sears catalog. It was delivered in the mail. The mailman pretty much threw it at him because it was quite literally a box of live bees. Oh wow! He put it up on the roof of his bedroom and just every day after school went and hung out with the bees and kind of self-taught. Unfortunately, that first colony, because it was shipped from Mississippi to California, it didn't survive, but he was hooked and just kept working with bees. He started working with a mentor here in town, Adrian Winter, and from there has just always had bees as a part of his life. Primarily, he was a teacher, but bees were always a hobby. So when I came along, um, little did he know that naming me Melissa was actually going to be kind of a big deal because Melissa means honeybee. So I didn't really dabble in the bees too much growing up unless I was just following along with him. 
I also went into teaching. So I became a kindergarten teacher, taught for a few years. I did always have him come in and do his B presentations. So I always tried to incorporate that a little bit, but ended up finding myself in the principal's office more often than my students. Um, I was constantly fighting against the education system and basically it did wear me down. So it got to the point where I I decided, yes, I wasn't going to change my philosophy. So instead I left teaching and I went into the bees and now I do beekeeping full time, mostly based around education and mentoring. So I do not do like the big scale pollination, honey extractions, anything like that. It's mostly just education and mentoring. So I do still take bees into classrooms, but now I get to do that back and forth rather than just limiting myself. Right. So it actually, your view of education, you're able to actually be more in alignment with yourself, which I love this. Yes. Bringing, I'm still, mm-hmm. Well, bringing relevant topics that matter to the earth and to the child into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so wow. important. I, I think that's um, really where our education is kind of faltering is that just real world application and what are these problems and how do we actually get into it and not just look at it in a book? And why does it matter? Why does you know, it matter? that's the thing. Why does this matter? No, that's a big question. And mm-hmm. I guess what I want to also put out there is I'm aware of the last, I don't know, has it been a decade of, ah, save the bees? You know, what's happening? Why does it matter? Tell us about that. I hate that slogan. I'm going to (laughs) begin with that. Okay. So save the bees is extremely misleading and it actually has contributed to a problem that we're facing now. And the problem is that we actually have too many beekeepers and too many honeybees. So unfortunately, when everybody hears the term save the bees, your immediate mind goes to honeybees because that is what's most popular. That's what everybody knows about. And because of that, people have done phenomenal jobs at saving honeybees. But what they don't always understand is that in the world, we have about 20,000 species of bees. And honeybees only make up about 20 of that. Okay. 20,000 species of what can be called a bee. And that's not even including non-bee pollinators. Mm -hmm. So just in the bees, we have mason bees, minor bees, leafcutter bees, longhorn bees, sweat bees, bumblebees, carpenter bees. There are so many. And just last year, we had eight new species of bumblebees added to the endangered species list, four of which only live in Hawaii. So these are the bees that are actually at risk. But when people hear the slogan, save the bees, unfortunately, that limits a lot of that mindset to just honeybees. Okay. In my mind being what it is, I think, is that because honey is a commodity and our culture is oriented towards commodification? If I can buy something or sell something around it, does that make the, what I hear called European honeybee, and I don't know if that is correct or not, but that make it, makes it more of what we think about in our society because that's how we're oriented. Is that a thing or am I making that up? No, that it definitely does play a role because one of the reasons why honeybees are amazing is because they do more than just one thing. So we can use them for pollination, 
But then we also get these byproducts from them, which is honey, wax, propolis, um, even the bee sting therapy, apotherapy, that's huge too. So there are a lot of other components that can be utilized by honeybees that other pollinators don't offer. So for example, minor bees, they're a solitary bee. They live in the ground. So they're not as easy to maintain as honeybees because it's not a large colony made up of thousands of little creatures that are all working together, where if you know something happens to one, there's still a whole colony that can regenerate. Minor bees, they are individual bees. So if one dies, that's it. So they're much more sensitive than honeybees and don't offer so, these other items. So not all bees are as unified and communal as honeybees. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So honeybees actually fall into a different category where they're considered eusocial, which means they are of the utmost highest level of social creatures. Some even consider them more socially adept than humans because of their ability to work together collectively as one. So bumblebees fall next in line under honeybees in terms of their social hierarchy. Bumblebees are considered social creatures. So they do live in small colonies. Honeybees, you're looking at like between 30,000 to 80,000 bees. Bumblebees, about 200. So still nowhere near the same capacity, but they still are social creatures. The difference too, though, is all of the worker bees will die off in the winter and only the queen bumblebee will hibernate through to the spring. So again, if that one queen, if something happens to her, that's now an entire colony that has died. Whereas with honeybees, if something happens to their queen, they can typically create a new queen and rejuvenate themselves and just keep going. Oh, so wow. when we say save the bees, honeybees are actually extremely self-sufficient and for the most part can save themselves if, you know, there are other, if there are not. So they can, for the most part, save themselves. Other bees, however, they are not as resilient. And so that's why when we say save the bees, those are actually the bees that we should be supporting not honeybees. And is it is it because of honeybees adaptation ability and highly social based on their highly social and you said you social is that eu social and does that mean collective it's like that we mindset is what i'm i think i'm hearing and mm -hmm. and you talked about my bee box having 20,000 bees but that that one that whole thing is one organism so is it because of how they operate that makes them more resilient so in terms of who we have to worry about it's there's nothing wrong with honeybees yay they're not hurting anything it's just there are other species of bee that are more endangered and what might be some of the ways that we can help in that cause yeah, in, in, so, in honey or other kind of bees, you know, mm -hmm. is there in what can we do? Yeah. So the, like I said, honeybees are not in danger, but that doesn't mean we need to be, you know, killing them or anything. Right. The worst thing that they do is they just create more competition for the native bees. So oh. it is actually a good practice to scale back 
the number of beekeepers that we have in an area because the more beekeepers we have, that means more honeybee colonies that are in an area. And there is such thing as, you know, over tipping the carrying capacity. The carrying capacity is what an ecosystem is capable of sustaining in a healthy way. If you over tip one species of something, it throws off the balance. So having too many honeybees creates too much competition that the other bees just aren't as strong or as resilient to counter. Honeybees, because they have such mass numbers, they're out there just working the fields, working the fields, doing a great job. But ultimately what we could do is just scale back the number of of honeybees to give those other bees a little bit more of a possibility at foraging. So the next best thing to do then is to provide more resources, plant more flowers. That's ultimately what the pollinators need are more resources. One of our issues is monocropping. That is harmful for the bees because that's giving them just one food source. Yes, there are some bees that only pollinate one food source. And those are great bees that, you know, in that ecosystem, let's work with them. Honeybees, bumblebees, they need a variety. They like to work, you know, they need a plethora to create that healthy biome in their gut. So by planting not just one species, but having a variety is also creating just healthier, stronger bees. That's so so interesting. And I, less beekeepers. Well, so here's the thing uh, is that we have always, as far as I know, brought in a group of bee people and they bring their bees from the Midwest or wherever. They set up bee boxes on our ranch during the flowering season. And because we have a monocrop, we grow avocados here, we need bees. So they put boxes all over the ranch so that it'll pollinate our avocado trees. And what you're saying, and all of a sudden what I realized is as soon as they're done, they pack them up, ship them off to somewhere else where there's another crop that's flowering. And there's a a substantial die off, I think, when they get moved. I see that. And I've started to see them as bee slaves. That's what I'm calling them is bee slaves. We just ship them around, work your butts off, and then we're going to take all of your honey. Yeah. So, but what you're saying is this practice is actually crowding out the native species or the non-bee pollinators that actually we want to cultivate to make, is it a healthier ecosystem here at the ranch if we don't do this targeted? Because what I've been told is that there's no way you're going to get enough pollinators to pollinate all those, you know, if we've got 16,000 avocado trees, you're not going to get that done. You're going to need a leg up okay, fine, but we might scale that quantity back or what, how would you advise me on that? So this actually um, brings up an interesting topic. There's a really great article in the New York Times called The Beekeepers Who Don't Want You to Keep Bees. And what they mention in that is that, like you said, with your agriculture that you need to be bringing in these pollinators to make sure everything is pollinated to bringing in these bees, There's a great quote that I'm just going to read from this. And it says, that's an agriculture story, not a conservation story. So what you're focusing on is the agriculture aspect and not so much than the overall conservation 
of the whole ecosystem. Now, you can't say there's anything wrong with agriculture because what that means as a word is that producing food, we need agriculture. We but need agriculture. It's the type of program you you practice. It's the systems that we have in place that have created harm. And that's where we should be refocusing and kind of reestablishing what practices we should actually be using moving forward. So this idea of having large scale areas with one type of plant means then you have to bring in large pollinators to hit that crop hot and heavy. When mm-hmm. instead, what we should be practicing is how can that ecosystem be sustainable year round on its own cycles, utilizing what lives there? Or maybe, you know, there are places where there are migratory creatures that come through. But ultimately, honeybees, they're not a migratory creature. We are creating them as migratory by moving them around. When instead, you know, there are just here in California, 1600 species of native bees. So there are so many others that if you offer them a safe and prolific space to live, they're going to do their job and they're going to work with their other species that do their job. And collectively, it's the whole ecosystem is now working together rather than just isolating one species of crop or one species of pollinator and then trying to get things to come together. Naturally, wow, okay. it already has its own. Oh, gosh. And it's so interesting that human intervention notion that we have to, humans have to make all this happen when nature actually has a lot of things figured out. Nature doesn't have monocropping figured out, but maybe more biomimicry in general would be the way to go. And what I think I just want to make sure I'm hearing you is we need two things. We need food resources, which would be flowers, flowering plants, and we need habitat. What is habitat? Because I think of Winnie the Pooh and he's always got honeys, bees living in trees. But what would the habitat, I mean, you mentioned one type that lives in the ground, but how might I or we cultivate more habitat for bees? So that would begin with providing food resources. So the flora Mm -hmm. that they would need, draw them in. And then luckily we do live in a day and age where there are other types of hives that you can buy. So you can actually buy solitary bee homes. Again, they're not the same as the ones that we see that honeybees live in, like the big white ones. Nothing like that. Most of them, if anything, are like little uh, bamboo tubes because they mimic Uh just a a little hole. So some of them are just a box with hundreds of little tubes in them. And that would be offering the bees their nice little nests. Some of the solitary bees, they do live in their own holes, but they live in groups. So they're considered semi-social where they're still collectively living around each other, but they each have their own homes that they're actually occupying. Um, bumblebees, for example, they love to make their homes in piles of mulch, piles of leaves. They live in the ground more so. Loose ground, though, not hard dirt. Mostly it's that's that nice fluffy, like mulch is actually mm-hmm. one of a really great thing. So unfortunately, what does happen and why 
um, bumblebees do get destroyed often is because people do start doing their landscaping. They put out these beautiful piles of mulch. A bumblebee colony will move in in the wintertime when it's just that one queen hibernating. If that pile of mulch needs to get moved or used, that habitat is now gone for that colony. Okay. So having just specific places that are going to stay year round is creating a safe habitat. So leaving a pile. So if I've got three inches of mulch covering certain sections of whatever, or citrus or this or that, that's not enough. You want a pile to make a habitat. Yeah. So if you have some extra, just leave a few piles. A few piles. A few piles around. When you have the piles, that's now offering a home. And when it's next to a beautiful plethora of flora, that's creating resources. So now bumblebees, when they're in the area, they're more likely to stay and utilize that area because you're offering them what they need. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is mind expanding, I will say. And I will say my sister just was here visiting and she gave me a bee box with the bamboo tubes for mason bees. And mm -hmm. it said to put it on an east facing wall. It's small. I mean, is that enough? I mean, you can get bigger scale things too. Well, again, it's most of these other bees are either solitary or semi-social. So they really don't need that much in terms of their space or their home, the hive. It's really more about just the collective ecosystem that they're occupying. So again, right. having that home, the flora, everything is what they're going to need. Most of their colonies are not very big, but most other bees, like minor bees, are actually much more prolific pollinators than honeybees. So technically, you don't need as many. Mm -mm. You don't need as many of them because um, like one mason bee can pollinate 95 times more effectively than a honey, than one individual honeybee. So wow. you don't need as many of them. You actually need fewer. This is all new news. And, you know, this Save the Bees, I guess we need a new campaign that would say, well, one thing is to really encourage pollinators. And I want to say that, right? Save the pollinators. Mm -hmm. Because traditionally what our monocrop did was use chemicals to get rid of any, what we call weeds. I call them volunteers, but many of them are flowering. And actually now we leave those as much as we can because those actually provide food and resources for the pollinators. Because I don't know all the reasons why we do that. I know I don't want chemicals, but I, this is all a dawning awareness that actually one, Mother Nature is modest and she likes to be covered. So leave whatever's green on the ground if you can. That's one thing. And bare ground evaporates at 85% and covered ground at 12. So that's another reason. But what I'm also hearing is all those flowering volunteers, shall we say, are really healthy and good for the trees in, in the way that it's got pollinators. Now, what, what do pollinators do for my avocado trees or for anyone's anything when they're not flowering? When my trees aren't flowering, is there still reason to have all these insects? So you're still, it's still part of that ecosystem. And our, the natural world works on cycles. So the, 
the flora, that is cycling when it needs to be pollinated. So again, it brings us back to having, you know, that all the different kinds. So that way there's always something that is pollinating or that mm -hmm. is, you know, offering mm -hmm. pollen. So the bees and the pollinators that are in that area, they're going to always have a food source, hopefully, which is going to create that sustainable or even regenerative ecosystem. Because mm -hmm. yes, they might not be pollinating the, um, the avocado trees, but if you had other things that poll or that bloom at a different season, you know, that's then going to create a whole nother food source for you and I as well, mm -hmm. instead of just having that one monocrop. Um, there are also other parts of the trees and plants that bees do utilize. So they do go for pollen and nectar, but they also actually go for the resin, the tree sap. And that is a very important part of a bee colony as well. They use it, um, they make a substance called propolis. Propolis mm. is also something that we can utilize. Um, it's ultimately what it is, is it's an extension of the bee's immune system. So they do have an in internal immune system like we do, but they also have created this substance that they coat the outside of their, their immediate colony. So the inside of the wooden box will have a coating of propolis on it, which is almost like for us, it would be like our layer of skin, where it's just this okay. extra entity that is creating protection from any pathogens, pests, parasites, that kind of thing. So they do will, they will utilize the trees for the tree sap at different times of year. And that could be when the tree is blooming or it could not be when the tree is blooming. Wow. Okay. This is so much that we don't know. Do you teach this in classrooms? I do. I will also say first that, especially with bees, I always say the more you know, the less you know. Because it okay. is kind of like a rabbit hole of you learn one concept, but then it creates these questions and it's like, oh, it's a never ending rabbit hole. Um, right. But what I do is I do mostly mentoring and education. So part of that is going into classrooms. I have observation hives. So I take bees into schools and organizations and teach them about the lives of the, the bees, as well as what we can do as humans to continue this relationship with them in the most mm. healthy and productive way. God, I love that so much. And I'm being reminded of the novel, The Secret Life of Bees, and each chapter started with a, a wild fact. I remember it was like, this is magical, enchanted beyond reality, but it's real about what bees are actually like. Yes. Yeah. So for me, I actually can, my philosophy of beekeeping with, especially honeybees specifically, is that Yes, it is a colony of thousands, you know, up to 80,000 little creatures, but collectively it's like one organism. So it's actually one creature made up of thousands of little cells, just like our body. The difference is that the cells are a little bit bigger, so you can actually see them, mm -hmm. but ultimately it's still working together as one creature. So mm. each beehive does develop its own personality. They have their own behaviors. They go through their own daily cycles. So bees every day have an orientation flight where it's the time of day when all the new bees get to leave the hive for the first time. And they have to just come out and they fly in a bit of a figure eight pattern just to orient themselves. Where is their home? And then they get to go off into the world. 
But every day a beehive will have orientation. The time will be the same, but different for each hive. So in my backyard, I have two beehives. One of them has orientation at about 3.20 every day. The other one does its orientation at about four o'clock. So even wow. within its day, it's, they've got their own, they've got so many things going on. That is mind blowing. And it's also thrilling to me because this ties into another guest we had on this podcast was Roger Savory, who talks about holistic context and mm -hmm. seeing the holes within the holes. And so seeing a beehive as a whole and each bee is a whole, but it's within this greater context. I just love it when the pieces start to come together in my understanding. Yeah. And then yeah. we could even take that a step further and see where does that creature then fit within an ecosystem? And I say that specifically with honeybees because they are the bees that we are utilizing in so many different ways. And even though I do say, you know, save the bees does not mean we need to save the honeybees. That also doesn't mean that we need to disregard them entirely. We still need to also, I believe, shift our practice with how we work with them to also, you know, sustain everybody. So in nature, these bees typically would be living in trees. Now that's creating a relationship between this bee colony and the tree itself, because the tree is also a living creature. Then there are also all these other insects that come into play. And our beehives, it's almost like we've removed them a little bit from nature mm. and we've isolated them. Because as I started condos, off, kinda. they're in condos mm -hmm. in an urban not, environment, kind of. And not just that, but I, we've also completely isolated them in the sense that as I started off this conversation today, you know, telling you about how I put an ant protector on these beehives. So there's a moat below them. So there's an ant protection. So it's kind of like they're now suspended in their own little bubble. Nothing can touch them. Mm. But again, if we look at this collectively put into a tree, there is no natural ant protection because, you know, the tree might right. have multiple holes. But there's some kind of a relationship for the most part that there are a lot of beehives that live naturally in the wild and bees aren't a problem. For yeah. us in our apiary, sorry, yes, ants are not a problem. Right. For, uh, for me as a beekeeper, ants are a huge problem and I'm constantly fighting against them because if the ants do cross over my moat, they can just go in and overtake a hive and the bees will leave because wow. something in that relationship has shifted that they no longer work together anymore either. So ants are so little that bees can't sting them. No. The that's most why they that's can, a, an enemy? Yes. The most they can do is just use their wings, kind of like leaf blowers and blow uh -huh. them out. But if ants are coming in in mass force, the bees typically will just kind of wave their white flag and abandon. Okay. Yeah. Wow. But they don't always do that in trees in nature. Oh, so there it's must be different... something that we don't know about that yet a... that mm -hmm. I love that about this whole area of learning is because there's always more we don't know about nature and how it actually works. We're yes. just the learners here. Well, I think what this reminds me of is the fact that I finally have applied for a pollinator grant that um, the Chumash Resource Conservation 
district has has released a grant that the Community Environmental Council is helping to administer. This is all new for me, and I've applied, and I feel really ignorant, and I hate feeling ignorant, and that's a deterrent for me. Mm-hmm. But I have to stay with it. And this is one of my mottos about all that I'm doing is just don't be afraid to make mistakes and feel ignorant. It's constantly with me. Um, and so, but it looks like I'm in line to apply for cover cropping and alley cropping and pollinators. And I'm also looking at a thing called beneficial which are insects that can be predators to the natural enemies of the avocados. And so there's all, and there's many other things. There's, there's other, you know, hedgerows, but all of these things are within a pollinator grant. So it seems like the state of California understands the need for this in agriculture. So it's an add on. They're really prioritizing agriculture farmers, um, also minority farmers, which includes women still at this point and people of color and different, different areas. And that's who they're prioritizing. But, um, this ties in with your area of interest. I mean, like your whole bee teaching and, and work. I mean, one of the things that I do like to share is that honeybees are not native to America. They were brought over with the pilgrims and they were originally known as white man's fly because Mm. beekeeping has predominantly been a white man's profession. Okay. So it's also then shifting that whole mindset of here in America, there was a time where there were no honeybees and there were all of these other pollinators that were able to keep the land and the ecosystem beautiful and functioning and everything. Mm. Mm-hmm. So how do we now, you know, shift that mindset a little bit to go back to what it was like before the honeybees, but also with the understanding that we have them, they're here to stay, they're not going anywhere. So how can we now create this new balance of, you know, having a working relationship with honeybees while not putting all of these other pollinators at more risk than we already have? So that's what a pollinator grant might do. That's a pollinator grant might help farmers bring back a healthy system for all the bees. Yes. And not just that focus of the one honeybees. Right. When you have a bloom, when Mm -hmm. your crop has a bloom. Now, what's funny is that (laughs) I love beeswax candles. I love how it smells. Is that okay for me to buy beeswax candles? I mean, these are just like things that 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 people can learn yeah. about. Is that good? Is that bad? What is it? Personally, I love beeswax candles too. I yeah. actually prefer beeswax candles over other candles because they're more natural. They, I think, smell better. And um, they don't release as many fumes and chemicals into the air. So beeswax is something that we obviously have a long history with and we've always made candles with them. So again, it really just comes back to that practice of where are we sourcing these materials from? 
I am a strong component of just that, you know, small scale local sourcing. So in most places, there's going to be beekeepers. A lot of farmers markets will have someone who sells beeswax candles or, you know, honey or different products. And those are the types of people that I do want to support because they do have a relationship with the bees. They're not quite on the scale of the large commercial beekeeping industry, but they're a little bit more than just the everyday backyard hobbyist. So you can still get this great, these great products from them. Mm. And you're also supporting your local community and your local environment. Um, so farmers markets are where I say the best places to go are. Unfortunately, okay. there is some controversy around beeswax because it is a fatty soluble. So it does absorb a lot of whatever is in the air. And a lot of beekeepers do treat their bees, which means they actually will put chemicals in the hive to kill off certain pests like mites. Unfortunately, what that can do is that can also, for some people, they say that taints the beeswax then because you're putting, um, it's either formic acid or auxilic acid. You're putting that in the hive and you're basically fumigating it. Um, Also with just the regular commercial use of pesticides that are constantly being sprayed around, that's getting put onto, you know, the nectar and the pollen, which the bees are then consuming and then producing wax from. So there are some people that say that they're really a lot of beeswax these days has been tainted through the use of chemicals and pesticides. And there's only certain regions. I know like Brazil is one of them where they have really high standards on their what is allowed to be used just, you know, in everyday use. So their beeswax is considered more pure because it's just less exposed. Unfortunately, our beeswax here, you know, you can go to CVS and get Raid or Roundup and just spray that anywhere around your house. And I say those two specifically because they are two of the most harmful to all pollinators. Okay. And... That's a great thought, and I was just going to get to that because I was going to say our neighbor farmers are purely conventional. That's how they would describe themselves. And they spray something called Agrimex, and it's for mite. And my concern always is that there could be drift that might get to our bees are everything. I mean, the creek between us. And I understand that there's a whole, that big ag chemical orientation is still really prolific and prevalent in our farming culture here. But in the meantime, it seems all these pesticides, so pesticides, are they killing bees or are they what I understand about glyphosate or Roundup is that it weakens the plant and it creates a malnutrition thing. So anything that then, and maybe the bee gets the pollen f- from the thing and then it is it gets in its system and then that robs it of nutrition and then it becomes weak and more prone to things like mites. That's the cycle I think I understand. Am I correct on that one? Yes. So I have always... Yes, I've always said that um, using pesticides and treatments creates weaker bees and stronger pests. Okay. Because I mean, short and sweet. Ideally, what would be what I would like to see is that you know these pests that we're constantly fighting against 
instead of using chemicals, because that's a quick fix, instead we start shifting those practices to what are the beneficial insects that we can start attracting that are going to counter that on their own? Or what are the other, you know, beneficial plants that we can put in that will, you know, deter these or attract these? Nature always has a solution for its own problems. So it's more a matter of taking the time and the energy, and unfortunately that also means the money, in trying and, you know, figuring out for that particular ecosystem, you know, what does this need to help it be the most functional? And Mm. unfortunately, not everybody I feel is willing to put in that time and energy and effort. Instead, it's, oh, here's something you can go spray and it's going to kill, you know, the majority of the things right now. So you'll get a crop next month. Obviously, I'm exaggerating a little bit in the timing, but it's a much faster fix that that's where we're now seeing these long term effects of now our pollinators are at risk because we have been only doing not only but we have been mostly doing these little fixes rather than looking at the big overall problem of how can we make this area more you know resilient on its own without that constant so that's i'm hearing chemical rescue which is quick versus long-term health long-term solutions because there's there's always going to be a new problem there's always going to be something that changes or something comes into play so it's a matter of just okay we have this new problem what are the solutions that we can do to continue moving forward So you're actually better off coming up with a long-term solution that may take a little while suffering the hit. Like, you know, again, not everyone has an, um, you know, a commercial agricultural entity like I do, but in our case, we had thrips coming down the pike, you know, pretty significantly and we're going to take a hit. And we just need to now find out how we can market our avocados that are suffering thrips, which makes them ugly. They're still perfectly good avocados. They're just not attractive. And, the, you know, the markets don't sell them. They don't want them. But they're still food. They're fabulous food. So I'm mm-hmm. trying to find new ways to market that food that's perfectly good Um And so we did not use Agrimex for our thrips. You know, we did not this year, but we're also planting beneficials that are going to attract the predators, but that's for next year. We have to wait and we're taking the hit this year, which is not a popular thing. I'm, you know, I'm putting out there some unpopular ideas, but in the Mm -hmm. long run, my sense is we're going to have a healthier ecosystem. Yes, which in the long run would then hopefully produce an even higher crop yield because it's a reflection of how healthy the overall ecosystem is. So, And there's a human analogy in that if we really create healthy, holistic systems in our bodies and in our lives and in all things, that we're going to be more resilient personally. And at every Mm -hmm. system, at every context, larger, 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 it's going to be true. The same principles are going to be true. So this actually um, brings me to another interesting idea because I last year went to um, the U.S. Virgin Islands and I got to spend some time with a beekeeper 
on St. Croix, which was fascinating. And one of the concerns that he was talking with me about was how St. Croix specifically is the main agriculture island. It's because it's one of the flattest. And they have a decent honeybee population. But unfortunately, due to the last few hurricanes, those bee populations took a huge hit. So they're having a hard time bouncing their bees back at the same rate that they need to be, you know, pollinating all of these, this agriculture. So the government was talking about the idea of sending in more bees. But this is where the beekeeper was like, no. The the Virgin Islands are one of the only places where there is no varroa mites infecting the bees. So varroa destructor originated in Asia with the Asian honeybees and has since spread everywhere. They just recently were introduced in Australia in the last few years, and Australia's bee population took a major hit because those bees don't know how to fight against these mites. Here in America, this is where, you know, and in other places too, but we have people that treat their bees. So that's where the azoic acid comes in and the um, formic acid. It's used to treat the mites. This beekeeper is very concerned because right now their bee population has never been exposed to mites. Their bees are already at risk because they've been taking the hits from the hurricanes. So if they bring in more bees and just one of those bees has a mite on it, it could actually wipe out their entire bee population, which their quick fix would be you need more bees because your agriculture is suffering. So let's bring in more bees. But ultimately, that could be more detrimental than positive. So there is this, you know, idea then of what can we do right now without having to import bees? What can we do with our population to help everybody and not put people at risk or bees? Wow. So when you make a decision, you can't do just the quick answer. You really need to take the thinking downstream, upstream, all around, bigger context, all think through it before you mm-hmm. make a, a jump decision and because it can have huge Im- impact. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it also... Yeah, and so it, it's interesting because there is kind of a save the bees vibe out there. Like what, listening to you, I feel like, no, no, there really is a thing. It's just not through the methods. Like I'm not really sure what people think we're supposed to do. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think don't use pesticides is one thing. I think that I, I my takeaway would be, but I haven't really understood plant more flowering plants uh, to be one of the solutions. Are there others? I mean, the way we, the things we buy, the way we buy, I mean, honey, local honey, I thought I heard it was great for allergies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. And honey, that is another um, topic that kind of touchy because what there's an, the same article, um, the one that's about the beekeepers who don't want you to keep bees. What it actually also touches on is that our honey supplies have decreased. Because, again, we have too many honeybees and not mm-hmm. enough resources. So what they are able to, to create, they are having to consume themselves. So the actual honey yield 
I believe, has gone down about 16%. Just, I think there was one, um, and I will fact check this, but just in LA County, there was like a a 16% drop in honey production just between the years of like 2017 and 2023 because and there's that's been because such the bees because there aren't enough flowering resources in their environment they have to then consume the honey they produce yes which is why i say one of the solutions to save the bees is not to become a beekeeper but that's a problem that a lot of people or a solution that a lot of people do see is save the bees oh then i'm going to buy a beehive and put it in my backyard to offer a beautiful home sanctuary house for these bees. But that in itself is the problem. You're looking at the wrong species of bee. And then depending on that person's, you know, practices and philosophies, if they're treating those bees, then they're contributing to that problem. Right. Um, For myself, I'm treatment free. So I take the route of, again, if there's a problem, how can I let nature help? And I actually witnessed yesterday a really cool example of that which in one of my beehives, there's an observation window. And there was a little bee running around that had a mite on it. And it actually was going up to other bees and doing a little shake, like it was telling the bees, hey, I have a problem, can you help? And it finds another bee who then actually pulled the mite off of it and discarded it. So this is now a colony that is learning hygienic behaviors and ultimately they're working on their mite treatment on their own. So there's no need for me then to step in and put acids in these hives to try and limit their mite numbers. Because ultimately, all of our beehives here are going to have some level of mite. It's just a matter of if the bees are healthy and strong enough to keep those mite numbers low. And by watching this bee actually go around and ask for help and have a bee help it, it's a sign that this is a strong genetic that yeah, maybe my other three colonies might die, but if this one survived, that one is a great one that can propagate. And those are going to be healthy bees that are actually beneficial because they're strong and they're resilient. Mm -hmm. The weaker bees, yes, we can allow some of them to die off, honeybees specifically, to just create a better balance overall. That is astounding. I think you saw my mouth dropped open for a while there. Um, Because first of all, you were able to see the mites. So mites aren't so small that you can't see them. You saw it and you saw this whole thing play out. That blows my mind. And I want an observation window on my hive. I have one for you. Have you really? Oh my gosh. That's exciting. Oh, beautiful. The front piece is clear so you'll be able to watch. So... Because the podcast is audio only, you can't see, but one wall is like lucite. One wall of the wooden bee house is lucite, right? um, It's plexiglass. Plexiglass. So, yes. So three sides are still solid. And then one side is, it's the same thickness. It's an inch and a half plexiglass. And then I put a piece of wood over it because bees tend, they like to work in the dark. So I don't like to keep it, you know, in the sun keep it closed, but it gives you that option to then go and open it up just the front part, be able to get an inside look without having to actually open up the bees. Because again, they're like one creature. And when you open them up, that's, I consider it the same as having minor surgery. 
you're going in, you're moving things around. That's their actual working body. And then when you close it up, they have to go back and fix what you messed up. So they actually have to go through a healing process. Mm. This removes that. It takes away that stress and it gives you a way to observe your bees and only go in if absolutely necessary. So it limits the amount of stress that they go through, which ultimately is just going to help them be happier and healthier. Great. This is exciting. Well, it also reminds me that um, if anybody is listening and wants to get bees, it's like you definitely need to have a bee suit. And you helped me just, I found one on Amazon and you were really clear with me a couple of days ago, thank goodness, because you said any, any opening the size of your finger, a bee could get inside your suit and then you have a bee in your bonnet and that's not pretty. Yeah, and that term comes from a reason. When, yeah. Well, last night when I was out there trying to write my knocked over hive, I had put my suit on in the dark, I, you know, but I was, had that in mind. And so when I, I did try to write the ship, there was one bee that it was buzzing loudly and followed me and stayed on my suit and thank God it did not get in. But what do you, does that bee have a role and are they boys or are they girls or what's the deal? That is a woman. Um, The worker bees are all girls. This time of year, actually, there aren't very many men, which we call drones. There are not very many drones in our bee colonies at this time because their main purpose is to mate with queens and the queens that typically happens in the spring. So at Mm -hmm. this time of year, if there are any drones, there might be a few because, again, you never know if something's going to happen to a queen. So you might want to keep a few on hand just in case. But ultimately, the workers are the ones that are doing everything. And so any resources, any food, they need because they're the ones expelling energy. So this time of year, the men actually get kicked out if they don't feel they have enough resources to sustain everybody. Um, That bee particularly, she was one of the guard bees. So her job was quite literally to try and deter you. From whatever you're doing, they can't differentiate necessarily if you know if you were still going to be a predator like the bear or if you were going to hurt them or harm them. So mm-hmm. they were already stressed; they had been knocked over. So she was just like, "Leave us alone." That's what she right. was trying to very loud and clearly tell you. So if you didn't have your yes, yeah, if you didn't have your suit on, she would have stung you because that right. would have been her ultimate way of saying, you know, no. But because you did have your suit, she was trying any and other every way to still get the message across. And the other day when you had opened up the hive to look at a few things and there was a a guard bee that came towards us, we both had our suits on and it hovered in front of us, checking us out. You were saying it's like, she's trying to decide, are we friend or foe? And she ended up going, okay, you're friend. You're not you don't have ill intentions. So she then went away. So really the bee can read our intention. The bees can really tell. So all bees are not to be feared. Some people are really scared of bees. Now, some people are allergic to bee sting, but short of that, really coming with positive intention and a loving attitude toward bees is a really good thing. Again, it's it's like when you approach any other animal or even a person, 
they're going to have, you know, their thoughts and their feelings. And it's how do we interact together? If I'm going to be disrespectful, they're going to be much quicker to tell me that and, you know, say I'm not welcome. But if I'm approaching them in a respectful way, then yes, I can create a more, you know, positive relationship. And there are studies done that have shown that bees can actually identify facial features. They're very pattern. They recognize patterns, you know, nature and our face is made up of a pattern. So the more times that you actually go out and just interact with bees in a positive and respectful way, the more that they're going to be able to then convey messages to you in a positive and respectful way. So that one bee that came up, she just gave us a little buzz. And if we had continued pestering, she might do that again, but her buzz might have been just a little bit more aggressive. Louder. Because again, she's just saying, you know what? I'm respectfully telling you, please go away. If you don't listen and you continue pushing boundaries, I will take the next step, which then ultimately can be stinging because that's how bees defend themselves. So the way I tell little kids is if you keep bothering them, she doesn't have the ability to tell you, no, I don't like that. Stop. Instead, she just stings. Right. Which ultimately is sending the same message. Right. And do they die after they sting? Do they give their life to that job? They do. So again, it brings us back to kind of like the the human relationship where in our bodies, if we get an infection or something, our white blood cells go and they attack it and then they die. Worker bees, same kind of thing. Something happens, they're going to go, they're going to sacrifice themselves, but it is to protect the overall colony. That's so interesting. I really like that immune system analogy and the propolis that, you know, we saw lining the hive that's kind of like a skin layer of immunity and protection. Mm -hmm. I love all of this and it makes one, it makes me ponder and reflect. And yeah, if you do have any other resources for us, that would be great. Um, Another question I do have is in terms of pollinators, let's just say a listener has, you know, a yard, a small yard, a medium yard, whatever. How do we know what to plant and are natives better? How do I know what the natives are, the native plants? And do we want perennials or I get really hung up on details? And it can stop me from doing things because I'm like, wait, I have to know what, what do I plant? How do I know what I plant? And it it couldn't be the same plants for all places in California or is my area specific or what do you know? You know, it's very region specific. So we have different climates and in each climate we have, you know, different plants and animals that live. We've got the rainforest, jungle, Mediterranean climate you know, all these different areas that are very unique. So it is a matter of doing a little bit of research and just knowing what is native to your area. Um, Mm -hmm. Luckily, there are a lot of books and resources now. Um, There's a great little field book that we got from the University of Davis, Cal State Davis. That or so, UC Davis. UC Davis. Do you mean the Gordon Frankie little? Yes. Oh, those are brilliant. I'll Those are brilliant. I'll put a link on that one too, if anyone's interested. Yeah. And what I actually really like about his work specifically is that he does focus mainly on native plants, but he doesn't discard na- um, invasive Non-native. plants altogether. 
because a lot of these plants, just like honeybees, they they've kind of passed the point of being invasive because they are here to stay. Mm. So they're of course never going to be endemic because they're not from this area, but they're kind of in that middle ground now where it's more a matter of just making sure that their the levels aren't over tipping that carrying capacity. So mm. yes, we can have some natives, some non-natives, but every ecosystem and every environment is going to be very unique. And that also I can say based on honeybees, when I move bees, if I've relocated one from even Galita to Carpinteria, sometimes they don't survive because that ecosystem is just different enough that they're not able to, you know, pick up where they left off and keep going. It's just too much of a traumatic move for them. So same thing had happened with my dad when he first got started. He got bees from Mississippi. They only lasted a couple months and then they died. So regions can be very unique and specific or they can be a little more broad, but it's about the species that you're bringing in. Maybe they're going to survive, maybe they're not. But again, now we're looking at that time and that energy, kind of a trial and error, but there are a lot of resources to just helping it started. I do know for a fact here, Arby's love purple plants, lavenders, sage, those kinds of plants. The bees are all over them. Ichium, okay. Prida madera, that's not a native plant, but again, it's a huge pollinator plant. So bees of all species greatly enjoy it. Oh my goodness. And there's a Mexican sunflower that Gordon Frankie tells me he loves for bees mm-hmm. in this area. Well, I'm wondering- there's another. Oh, go ahead. There's another um, plant too that my dad has in his backyard. It's an African star flower. Okay. I have seen more pollinators on that one tree than pretty much anywhere else. Just the other day, we counted six different pollinators. There were monarch butterflies, minor bees, the honeybees, and then a carpenter bee came in. There were so many all on this one plant. Wow. So butterflies are pollinators. Yes. Butterflies are huge pollinators. So much to know. Well, we have hedges. Eric Nagelman, the brilliant landscape designer, put uh, rosemary plants as hedges. So we have, and they have a purple flower. They're constantly buzzing and fluttering. And that's the thing. Buzzing and fluttering is what we want. You want to hear it. You want it to sound like it's alive. Yeah. Right. And rosemary is great too, because you can utilize that exactly. cooking and oils and salves. I mean, it's, it's, it's a multi-use medicinal. plant. I know it's true. Well, so there's so much I always want to ask you and maybe you'll just come back and we'll talk more, but I, I want to circle back and just say, if you had three main takeaways for listeners who may or may not have a whole lot of land or maybe they just have a balcony on their apartment or something like what are three main takeaways you really want us all to have? My three biggest takeaways would be don't use pesticides. And that includes things like raid and roundup because again, they're so common and I, I do feel like one of my biggest issues this year was because of all of the rain that we had there was a lot of weeds. Again, I don't know where the term weeds really originates from because we're the only ones that consider these plants weeds. Right. Otherwise, the pollinators and the animals are just like, it's another plant. It's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I do believe because of the rain, a lot more people were spraying their lawns this year. And I did unfortunately lose some of my hives to poisoning, which because of the way that it works, I can tell that that's what they succumb to. And unfortunately, there's no regulations on just what everybody can do around their homes in terms of spraying for weeds. Okay. Roundup. So that's not a pesticide. That's a a herbicide. Herbicide. Yeah. Herbicide and pesticides. Herbicides, insecticides. Or eliminate those. I'm going to take you one step further and say herbicides, pesticides, and insecticides. All of them are poisonous and all of them do harm. Okay. Let's find some better practices. Okay. If you have dandelions grown, just let them grow. I don't see the harm in that. I'm in they that also, now. Dandelions also are very beneficial. You can cook them up, the flowers, the leaves, and the stems. You can do a bunch of things. Candy dandelion flowers, delicious. Really? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. The next thing would be don't become a beekeeper. <laughs> Support other beekeepers. So I know, I mean, I'm guilty of this myself. I love playing with bees. I love being around honeybees and opening up hives. Now, if that sounds interesting to someone, come hit me up. Come to my apiary. I will help you do that. You know, there are certain, I believe, certain places where we can have honeybees and utilize them, but we've kind of reached a point where not everybody needs them in their backyard. Okay. So instead, let's limit the number of beekeepers that we have. Okay. Then the last one would be to source things like beeswax and honey from local farmers markets. Um, rather than playing into the large industrial corporations of, you know, our agriculture and commercial beekeeping industry. Yes, they do amazing work and they work very hard, but we need to start shifting our practices. So I believe we need to start putting more support into the local beekeepers that we have. Right. Great. Well, so what's next for you? I mean, do you have other future ideas for us? I've got a few. I mean, if we're talking immediate short term, I did get a text during our conversation that another one of my apiaries was hit by a bear last night. So <gasps> I am going to go do that immediately. I'm going to go do a little bit more bear control. Okay. Um, but long term, wow. I actually have just recently applied to a PhD program where I would like to start implementing some of my practices and ideas into a more research-based kind of educational route. I myself, yeah, I love learning and I feel that there's always so much to learn. So why not combine my passion of my work and my curiosity and what there still needs to be done or still needs to know and combine them. What would you call that area of study just out of curiosity? Like, is it entomology? Um, Is it, botany is it what would you call that well unfortunately I, all, I i already say that if you're a beekeeper you're also a botanist because beekeepers mm. need to know what the food sources are for their bees that they're working with so mm-hmm. beekeepers and botanists already i feel are very intertwined um also though what i'm looking at is more of that food security and that sustainability in our agriculture system mm. so the different there's a lot, which again, why it's why I'm like, maybe I should, you know, work with someone, a mentor, someone can kind of help me channel. Cause I'm like interested in this, interested in this. I want that. I, how does this relate? How can I go? And I'm like, okay. Yes. You and I share that. Different. You and I share that. There's just so much to know. 
Well, but see, here's how I think of it. I think of it as Russian stacking dolls. Mm -hmm. And so how do we create a unified theory? You're still young. I'm not as young. And I'm finding that many of my interests actually do relate in some context. So I've got the Russian stacking doll metaphor for myself. I love that. So I'll loan that to yeah. you. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here and letting me just ask you a million questions about your beloved bees. Thank you for letting me talk about bees. It's I never get tired of it. That's a wrap for today's episode of Regenerative Spaces. If you found this episode valuable or thought-provoking, share it with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll keep the conversation going over on Instagram. So join me at Stacy Poliche and share your thoughts, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. And before we go, your support means the world to me. If you have a moment, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us reach even more people looking to spark sustainable change in our world. Stay curious, stay inspired, and until next time, this is Stacy Poliche, and you've been listening to Regenerative Spaces.